Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey there, I'm Rochelle. Welcome to Wild Lives by Phonographic. Today we're catching up with the super inspiring Ian McAllister, who has dedicated his life to exploring, showcasing and protecting Canada's Pacific Coast, which is commonly known as the Great Bear Rainforest. This is an area bigger than two Switzerland's and it's the largest tract of temperate rainforest left on the planet. It's also Ian's office. Now he's an award-winning photographer, celebrated author, and he's also the co-founder of Pacific Wild, which is a game-changing NGO. He's also a filmmaker, and you may have even seen his recent IMAX film, Great Bear Rainforest. If you're down under, it's meant to be released here at the end of 2019. Ian has worked in the area for nearly three decades, and as his work showcases, this extraordinary place and the animals who live here are absolutely unique. Sprawling along Canada's west coast from the north of Vancouver Island all the way up to Alaska, the Great Bear Rainforest spans some 25,000 square miles or 6.5 million hectares. This densely forested wilderness supports large concentrations of terrestrial wildlife, including Canada's largest grizzly bears, the super rare spirit bear, which is known for its all-white fur, and the Pacific coastal wolf, which is also called a sea wolf because it survives on marine life and deer. But this pristine environment isn't just confined to the land. The Great Bear Sea is one of the world's richest marine ecosystems, with its vast kelp forests home to iconic cetaceans like orcas, fin whales, humpbacks, dowels porpoises, and Pacific white-sided dolphins, along with pinnipeds like stellar sea lions and harbour seals. Ian McAllister has made this wilderness and its wildlife his life's work, and we're stoked to chat to him today. Hey, Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're more than welcome. I know how busy you are, so let's jump straight into it. You were born in Vancouver, and you've been working the Great Bear Rainforest for nearly three decades. Now, I read somewhere that when you first arrived, you only intended to stay for about a week, but you've kind of never left how did that all unfold? Yeah, it was amazing how little twists in life set you on interesting courses. Uh, you know, I was I grew up in the southern part of British Columbia uh, near Victoria, and, and uh, had a spent a lot of my uh, formative years exploring the west coast of Vancouver Island, and so I had a pretty good understanding of the you know really the brutality of of what we had committed to one of the most productive rainforest ecosystems in the world. And, you know, over 80% of Vancouver Island's forests had been logged at that point. But I was fortunate to get on a research expedition, really more of a reconnaissance of Canada's northern rainforest, so the north coast of the North Pacific coast of Canada. And uh, the trip was only meant to last a week. But, you know, as soon as uh, we left the dock on Vancouver Island and a few days later, arrived in these intact river valleys that the Great Bear Rainforest has become so famous for. Uh, it was an absolute life-changing experience there. You know, there's nothing comparable to it uh, on the south coast of BC uh, after so many decades of industrial logging. And, and then to come to this place, the Great Bear Rainforest, and and sail day after day and not see any roads or clear cuts and, and river valleys teeming with salmon, it was absolutely life-changing and, and set uh, the course for what has been the last 30 years of, of exploration and filmmaking and photography and, and conservation work. You, as a result 
of your exploration there and everything, you today spend months in the field. Uh, you get to know the animals' behaviours before you get to photograph them and everything. So you really take a, an intense approach to things. But conditions can be pretty tough out there. What does keep you so patient in the field? <laughs> I don't think anyone that uh, knows me well would ever describe me as a very patient person. <laughs> um, but somehow, you know, being being out there, it really does demand a, a different mental state and you know to be able to you know really immerse myself in the world of the animals that uh, you know we're studying and working to protect and and documenting behavior it, it really means you know sort of leaving the mental state that I sort of carry with me in the city uh, back on the dock and it really I think just means that you have to have sort of a mental clarity to really interact with the species that uh, that I'm with and and I you know I know that to be true with with bears and wolves where you know they have such an uncanny ability to you know really understand intent I think from people even from a great distance and you know when you're comfortable when you're present and in that place I find most other animals are much more accepting much more tolerant and or perhaps even indifferent but Nevertheless, they allow you into their world. So it's, it, maybe patience is one way to describe it, but it's, um, it's being present in, in, in that place, yeah. Mm. You just actually mentioned the Pacific Coastal Wolves, who you've done a lot of work with over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about how they're different to other wolves? Yeah, they're so incredibly different. You know, everything I know about wolves in the whole Arctic, where wolves are found on planet Earth, uh, there's perhaps nothing you know like these sea wolves found on um in the temperate rainforests of the pacific northwest you know these wolves are so dependent on the ocean environment where they co-evolved for so long uh you know they they really almost should be considered a a, a marine mammal that considering how much they derive their livelihood from the ocean you know these wolves are fishing for salmon in the fall season they're hunting for seals throughout the year they swim from island to island. They search these outer coastal archipelagos for beached whales. The more you immerse yourself into the world of these uh, globally unique, genetically distinct wolves, uh, the more you realize how critically important the ocean environment is. What's some of the most interesting behavior you've witnessed from them? Oh, gosh, there's so many unique attributes to these, to these wolves. You know, I just remember first exploring uh, these river systems and finding, you know, countless headless salmon strewn along the shores of, of these rivers and thinking, you know, it's really peculiar bears that would only just, you know, decapitate the very head or the brain of the salmon and, and leave the rest. And it wasn't long when I turned a, a corner of a river valley and saw, um, you know, the first time I ever saw it, it was this pure black wolf emerged out of the rainforest and uh, walked into the river system and, and deftly caught a great big chum salmon and and then, you know, with its carnassials, pulled pulled the brain cavity out and ate it and left the body behind. And it was, you know, I had never heard of wolves fishing for salmon before. And, you know, the more we began researching this unique behavior and, and studying these, these wolves, uh, we realized that, you know, there's this parasite that 
is harmful to canids, uh, not harmful to bears, but harmful to wolves, uh, potentially in the stomach uh, cavity of salmon. And so the, the fact that they're utilizing the, the richest, fattest part of the salmon and leaving the rest alone just shows, you know, again, this, this long, long relationship between really the ocean and the rainforest uh, that's, you know, the ocean providing so much life for terrestrial animals like wolves. So, you know, fishing behavior, I've been following packs of wolves that emerge out of the rainforest every spring season to feed on herring eggs that are laid. Herring are these small, uh, smolt-like fish that uh, come inshore and in vast, vast numbers, and they lay eggs along the intertidal zone. And so the wolves come out and eat the eggs. And, and you know, every season is different, but each season is really characterized by, at least in the world of wolves, by their ability to, you know, benefit from the, from the ocean. It's pretty extraordinary. You've actually spent a lot of time getting incredible photos of them, and it's documented in your books. Which photograph or series of these wolves have you been most excited by? Uh, well, they're pretty elusive and, you know, largely nocturnal. So any photographs you get of, of these wolves is, is pretty, uh, pretty special. But, you know, over the years, I, I think the images that I find most interesting or compelling are the ones that really showcase, you know, that interface between the ocean and the rainforest. And so often when, you know, I'm observing wolves and I'm on a boat, I'll, get in a wetsuit or dry suit and, you know, the camera will just swim to shore and, you know, try to capture the underwater world, you know, from under the surface, looking through that surface lens, you know, at wolves fishing for salmon or eating herring eggs, that kind of thing. So trying to mix that, those different environments to show how important the ocean is to life here on land. Any images that, that capture all those elements, uh, I'm most proud of, yeah. So you've also spent years alongside Komodi bears, which are commonly called spirit bears. Do you remember the very first time you saw one? Uh, I do, yeah. I was, I was out photographing for the first book I ever did and, you know, always knew that, you know, the mythical spirit bear, you know, I had to include, uh, include it in, in this book, but I hadn't actually seen one before. You know, they, they were, they're so rare. There's so few of them. They're one of the rarest bears in the world perhaps less than 300 of them uh, in existence, you know, even rarer than the panda bear. And, of course, they're found in this, this rather dark, dense, lush rainforest, so they're, they're hard to find. Uh, but I remember walking up this river valley one day and, and turning the corner and probably passed about five or six black bears. And, and as I made my way up the river, I looked up and, and there was this pure white bear that came out of the forest to feed on, to start fishing for salmon. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget that. It's just one of those really life-changing moments to, you know, think of an animal that's so rare and in such a rare ecosystem, such, such as this temperate rainforest. Uh, you know, the combination is just uh, mesmerizing. Mm. The forest is also home to a massive amount of grizzly bears. How do you make them feel comfortable around you when you're photographing them or, or just amongst them? Uh, you know, I, I think, again, it's, it's just being really respectful and, and, and thoughtful. And, you know, the, these animals have such distinct personalities. They're highly, highly intelligent, and they can read our behavior much easier than, than we can read theirs. And, 
And I think that, you know, if you're, if you're comfortable, you're not doing something stupid, like stealing one of their cubs or getting in the way of, of their day-to-day existence, uh, then, you know, they are hugely uh, accepting and, and tolerant. You know, they've had a long, long history of living side by side with indigenous people of this coast. And, you know, the, the relationship between humans and, and the wildlife here is, is an ancient one. And, and it's one that unfortunately has largely been lost today, but I, I don't think it's lost within the, the DNA and collective memory of, of these animals. So it's, it's really more about us finding our place again in this landscape than really trying to change the behavior of, of uh, other animals. You do work quite closely, as I've mentioned, with these animals for photographing them and researching them. Have you ever found yourself in a dicey situation with either a bear or a wolf? Yeah, well, so far so good. I mean, I, I don't take, you know, personal safety for granted because, you know, again, a lot of these large carnivores are, you know, very capable of, of harming people and it does happen occasionally. But, you know, this rainforest is so lush and it's still so productive that the stress levels and the reproductive rates and, and all of these things are are still quite high and, and still, you know, of, of a natural level that, you know, they don't see humans as, as competition. Mm. Uh, so it's, I think it's largely a tribute to the productivity of, of their habitat that mm. allows for such tolerance. You have also spent a lot of time in the Great Bear Sea, as you mentioned when you were talking about going and and getting up close to the wolves, you would jump in. You do spend a lot of time documenting the kelp forests as well as its wildlife. Why is the Great Bear Sea, why is it such an extraordinary environment? Well, yeah, there's just in its own right, it's one of the, you know, temperate rainforests are one of the rarest forest systems uh, left on earth. They historically only occupied about 0.2% of the Earth's landmass, and most of what's left intact is found here in, in the Great Bear Rainforest. So you have this globally unique, incredible uh, rainforest, but there's also, just on its doorstep, this incredibly productive ocean environment, and it's that intermixing, that interface of ocean and rainforest that is so incredibly uh, uh, unique and and I think really what characterizes the, the, the richness of this coast, you know, the ocean feeding the rainforest and, you know, just even considering the spirit bear, it's, you know, why did this bear um, somehow evolve into a pure white bear? It kind of doesn't make sense because it's not really great camouflage to be pure white in a rather dark rainforest. But some scientists believe that the, the white coat evolves because it allows for more efficient uh, fishing. So the white bear blends into the sky, which actually camouflages it, allowing it to be a better fisher. Uh, and I, you know, I find that really incredible. And it's, it, I think it's a great symbol of, of the rainforest and, and of the ocean, because you know what it means is that the power of the ocean through salmon uh, is so influential and so strong, it actually changed the color of a bear. Do you actually have a favorite marine mammal? Well, I, I think we should be classifying these wolves as marine mammals. Uh, <laughs> Apart from the but, wolves. <laughs> um, well, yeah, there's there's so many. You know, I mean, killer whales on this coast are so 
you know, iconic, but, you know, the true apex predators of, of our oceans and their ability to travel uh, so far, being so long-lived, just this incredible intimate knowledge of every every bit of this marine environment, they forever leave me fascinated. The salmon and herring are just as iconic in this part of the world, and they're so vital to the area's survival. From the other side of the world, it's it's hard to get a kind of gauge on why they're so important. Can you just run us through that? Yeah, it's it's really hard to overestimate the importance of you know fish for this coast. You know, wild salmon are you know literally the backbone of coastal ecology and culture. Uh, it's what the it's what you know the BC economy was built on. Uh, you know the vast uh, runs of, of Pacific salmon have you know literally built this coast. They are truly a foundation species, and and yet today you know they're almost in a state of collapse, and it's it's almost like we've turned our our back on them in favor of you know fish farms and other industrial activities that continue to place them at harm. So you're a very renowned and passionate conservationist, and as such, you created Pacific Wild back in 2008. Tell us a little bit about why you did that and also some of your campaigns and recent successes. You've had a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had you know, laws in place that would protect this coast and would protect wildlife and, and would you know, help manage our behavior. But the fact is, you know, Canada is an international pariah when it comes to protecting the environment. We simply don't have laws and policies in place that adequately protect this place. And, and we're seeing, you know, ecosystems collapse and we're seeing wildlife becoming extirpated and, and, and so many different fronts. So conservation organizations such as Pacific Wild are absolutely essential and, and instrumental in, in protecting this coast. You know, without uh, non-government organizations using every tool in, in the toolbox to, uh, you know, ward off and help ward off industrial behavior, but also help protect this place, uh, we would be in a, in a far worse situation. Uh, so, you know, founding Pacific Wild and, and working with an amazing team of, of conservationists who are so focused on protecting this place is, has been definitely one of the more fulfilling, you know, roles that I've played on this coast and something that will certainly continue uh, in the foreseeable future. What's been your proudest moment as a conservationist working with Pacific Wild? Well, it seems like we're, we spend a lot of time putting out fires, you know, trying to stop oil pipelines and LNG pipelines and, and you know, just really destructive behavior that we're committing to the lands and oceans. But we have had, you know, some, some great successes. And, you know, I'm certainly proud of the work that we did working alongside the Heltzik and Kittisu Heihei's First Nation in their battle to stop the the uh, unsustainable herring kill fishery. Uh, so that moratorium has been in place now since 2015. Uh, after many, many years of work, uh, we managed to put a ban on the grizzly bear trophy hunt. So grizzly bears now can wake up in the springtime and not be shot just for a rug on someone's wall. Uh, we've protected, not nearly enough, but we've had some some success in protecting large intact rainforest river valleys over the years. Uh, and there's, there's lots of, you know, smaller campaigns and certainly lots of work left to do. But, you know, we occasionally can look back and say, well, 
you know, if we hadn't been doing this work, this place would probably be a lot worse off. It's absolutely vital work that you do, and we really appreciate it. You actually were named by Time magazine as one of the leaders of the 21st century, which is pretty phenomenal. Congratulations. But what is your best advice to the everyday person who wants to make a difference, whether they're Canadian or wherever they may be? It's a great question and something that, you know, I'm asked uh, quite often. And and I think that, you know, you just can't let despair uh, rule your actions that, you know, despair is what's, you know, really killing this planet right now. And, and, you know, the fact that, you know, as stressed as our planet is and as we're in such a jeopardy position, uh, it's still functioning. There's still so much life worth fighting for. And, you know, I, I just feel that if, if people you know, treat this planet like they would in defense of their own home and defense of their own family that, you know, we, we can turn this around. And I just think that people just can't let despair you know, rule their actions. Absolutely inspiring and 100% true. Thank you so much, Ian, for taking the time to talk to us today. We know how busy you are and really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it as well. Thanks for listening. Now, why don't you jump online now and check out more of Ian and Pacific Wild's work. Head to www.pacificwild.org and you can also check them out on Insta at Pacific Wild. Of course, for more wildlife news, views, podcasts, photography, etc., head to faunagraphic.com or visit us on Insta at Faunagraphic. Laters! Wild Lives by Faunographic. Check out our wildlife photo gallery at faunographic.com and on Instagram at Fornographic. Mm.